0: There's more to come. Watch out. That's the title of what we're looking at today. And we're in Mark chapter 13. Now, I got to tell you, I love to preach, but this particular passage has probably caused me more angst than anything I've preached on in 25 years. In fact, Thursday and Friday alone, I was probably locked up in studying somewhere around 18 hours just the last two days because I was nervous. The reason why is there are people who have written volumes of stuff on this text. And, and because I'm a content guy, I want to go down every single rabbit trail and I can't do it. Note There are 37 verses. Normally, we take just a little section, but this is the Olivet Discourse. This is the longest um, recorded, uh, extended speech in Mark's gospel. If you've got the red-letter Bible, you see all that red in there. That's Jesus talking, and I want to do it justice. So we've got a little agreement here. We can't cover all your favorite little questions that are going to come up in this text. I'll cover some of the bigger ones. So... If, in fact, you disagree in my interpretation, which there will be those who look at this and go, oh, I think he's talking about this, here's what you're going to do. I don't really want to know about it. You can just kind of do this with your nose like, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor. (laughs) But if I'm preaching it and you're liking it, you're just going to be grabbing the left ear here, just going, yeah, baby, keep on going, bring it. So that's where we're headed this morning now. Get, let me give you a little background. Now, look at, of course, you know, the whole high school already like scratching their nose. Yeah, we're not there. So... During the preceding days, let's set the context because we've covered 12 chapters. And by the way, we will pause here. We'll pick up chapter 14 in a few months leading up into our uh, uh, Easter season. But during the preceding days, remember what we've already looked at. Jesus has made his triumphal entry. This is either Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on who you are reading about this. Uh, He's prophesied the destruction of Israel. He's cleansed the temple. He's entered into numerous debates with religious leaders, and he's winning those debates. We had the experience with the poor widow and her offering last week. And ultimately, Jesus has set the stage to move from his public ministry to uh, the Passion Week here where we will leave the temple for good, and he's now got his faith set towards the cross. Now, to give this um, chapter justice, you you could have an epic movie. But what I want to do is take five snapshots, all right? Think back to the old Polaroid days, a little snapshot. For those of you who have iPhone, it's just an instant message. It's just a little glimpse at each of these sections, and we'll take a look at those together. So let's sort this out. And let's look at scene one, the setting of the day, verses one through four. And we'll start with the destruction of the temple, verses one and two. And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, you've got to imagine, they're sitting there looking at this temple that's been under construction for some 46 years. It's massive. In fact, historians tell us there was 35 acres surrounding the Temple Mount here. It could accommodate 12 football fields. And if you've been to Israel, you've seen some of the stones. It's been rebuilt because the prophecy is it was destroyed, and it was uh, destroyed, but there, I've seen stones that are 42 feet long, 11 feet high. 40, I mean, it's a massive architectural undertaking. And the disciples, their jaws drop at the thought that this is going to be leveled. There will be nothing left of this. In fact, we, saw, we know from history that Josephus uh, r- references this, that when it was destroyed in AD 70, now this is probably AD 33, somewhere in there, that some 40 years later, it's leveled and he says, to leave future visitors to the spot, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. In fact, at that time, you couldn't believe that there was a temple there. So that's the, 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 the setting of the day. The discussion of the disciples follows this. Look at verse three, and he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when is all this stuff gonna happen? what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished problem number one is he talking about that time is he talking about the church age now is he talking about something in the future and that's why there's so many interpretive issues in this passage and in fact as they're looking at that if you can picture it and i've been there they've crossed over the kidron valley And you imagine he's sitting there and they're looking back over at uh, the temple. Now, that's modern day picture of what it looked like. But those trees there, that is that Kidron Valley. I always thought of this big, lush, that's what's all down to that many trees right now. The rest of the disciples are heading east to Bethany. But these four have a few questions. You can think them going through this. You can't just drop this bomb and leave it at that. You got to tell us more. Snapshot number two. Look at scene number two verses 5 through 13. Now, what he's going to say to them says, I'm going to cover four things out of this section. And I want you to understand, I think the context of that section is the church age from that point when he's having that discussion all the way to the great tribulation, which I'll explain here in just a little bit. So, we're not talking about the end of the age. We're living this right now in our lifetime, these four things. And I will say these are four signs of our times today. He begins to explain that in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. First sign of our times is there going to be deception, This is a panoramic view of history that continues to this day. And we knew back then there were false messiahs, false preachers and teachers who would say, hey, I claim to represent God. We'll see that today. Now, notice in the text, he's going to say, watch out, be on guard, don't let someone mislead you a number of times in verse 5, in verse 9, in verse 23, in verse 33, in verse 35, in verse 37. When the Lord Jesus Christ says six times, watch out. What should we be doing? Newsflash, watch out, right? This is something that takes us all uh, into account because at times I think we just get a little complacent, like, oh, yeah, whatever, that guy's preaching that thing. But there will be plenty of false Christs. Now, where are the false Christs we see today? Well, I think in, in one world religion, in Islam right now, they are looking, their prophetic view is looking for forward towards who they call the 12th Iman. And this Iman is called the Mahdi, and he will be a false Christ. Now, I believe that if you go to Revelation chapter 13, 16, 19, you're going to see a description of that guy. I don't think that's who it is. We don't know who the Antichrist is, but that's the Antichrist. There will be false messiahs. So be careful, friends, who you follow. In our day and age, there's easily, it's easy for us to be Deceived. And if we get deceived because if we just listen to people who are talking, you've got to check it out for yourself. That's why the scripture say in Acts, be like the Bereans. Check it out for yourself. If Scott and I are preaching and going, hey, i got a question about that. That's all right, because we want you to dive into God's Word with us. So deception is the first one. Second one is there'll be disasters. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. So there are three kind of natural disasters he describes, and we're seeing all that. There will be wars. That's kind of the geopolitical landscape of our day. In fact, someone has said that 95% of all societies have engaged in war. There's been less than 300 years in human history that there hasn't been a war somewhere in the world. And I'm pretty sure, like when people make up those statistics, how do they know what was going on like in 427 B.C. or, you know, 212 A.D.? I'm pretty sure somebody was fighting somewhere, someplace. So the bottom line is war is a part of the fabric of the world. World War II, check it out. I had to, to checked this three times. Sixty million people died in World War II. It was the most deadliest war in all of human history. You think that's bad? There's worse news in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9, verse 16, when we see the Battle of Armageddon. There will be war. Now, I need to just pause here for a moment because depending on your theological viewpoint, some people believe... Oh, no, this is not that big a deal because, quite frankly, the gospel will change the world, and it will, and we're actually living in the millennium right now. You say, what's the millennium? So there are three views of kind of what happens, and I want to give you kind of an eschatology 101 real quick, all right? So you're in the church age. Christ died, church age, and we've now been 2,000 years in that, and we believe there'll be a thing called the rapture where the church will be taken up into the sky to join Jesus. That's called the pre-tribulational rapture theory. Can we all say that together? No, all right? But you say, that's great. Okay, so we're gonna miss all that because in a little bit, we're gonna talk about the tribulation. And then after that, um, there's seven years of really bad stuff called the tribulation. And then Christ comes back. That's what we call the second coming or the blessed hope. And then He establishes a thousand-year reign on the earth. Now you say, wow, that is a bit confusing. Well, here's where it gets a little more complicated. Some people, we believe that that will be a literal thousand-year reign. But there are some people who say, nah, that's just a spiritual thing, and that was really for Israel, and there's really not a thousand-year reign. Christ has come back, and then we're just going right to heaven. And then there's a third group who, and so that mill, that's us, our, 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 our church's viewpoint, Awmill, which there is really no millennium, and then post-mill, which says this. It says simply, there will be no literal millennium. In fact, the earth and the world are getting better and better because Christians are a salt and light influence in the world. In fact, they would say we're in the millennium right now. Um, I'm pretty sure things are not getting better here on planet earth right now. I think there's plenty of wars to go around to last us for eternity. And he says there are a few other things that are signs while this is happening. Earthquakes. Now, you may not know this, but I checked the geological survey on Friday. As of Friday, December 12th, in the United States alone, there were 42 earthquakes 254 earthquakes in the past seven days, 1,223 earthquakes in the past month, and 15,105 earthquakes in the past year that registered 1.5 or more on the Richter scale. I think we have a few earthquakes. Now, of course, we've, we've seen those. Um, picture up there is of the Indonesian earthquake that caused that huge tsunami in 2004, um, over $7 billion worth of damage. A more recent earthquake was the one in Haiti on January 12, 2010. There's a picture there of that. 52 aftershocks and just, just ongoing devastation. So we get it. There'll be earthquakes. Then there'll be famines. And one of the ones that you studied in history was the great Irish potato famine in the 1850s that caused so many people to die and ultimately many immigrated actually to the United States. But he says at the end of that that this is a sign that stuff is going about to change. It's, there are birth pangs. And so what he's saying, just like when someone's pregnant and they start getting these birth pangs or contractions you know that the, the time is near like what happened last night I get a phone call from my daughter she says dad I, the contractions are coming about every four minutes I think I better get to the hospital she kinda casually gets there at 830 and at 950 oh. little Rhett was born so when you have birth pangs there's a delivery about to be made. In the same way, when you see all of this coming together, you're going to know that we're moving towards down this prophetic time clock towards Jesus coming back. Number three, we'll see distress, verses 9 through 11. And I won't go through all the verses, but you'll see that there will be people arguing, and delivering you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. Verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. We'll talk about that in a moment. And when you speak, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will be with you. Let me give you a couple ideas here on this distress piece. If you're a Christian, you're going to face persecution. In fact, the disciples believed that they had already gone through this. This isn't the first time he's warned them about that. Matthew 10, he talks about that persecution. And they thought, and some thought that this was fulfilled, that kind of persecution in A.D. 70 when Titus comes in and just levels the temple And every Jewish uh, customs, as we know it, ceased in AD 70 in terms of that era. Now, there's something that people read here in verse 10, the gospel must first be claimed to all nations. They're not saying that everybody has to hear the gospel before Christ returns, but can you imagine today how that makes a little more sense than it did to them back then? Because there's no transportation issues. There's no technology issues today like they faced back then. It's conceivable that the whole world will hear the gospel before He returns. Twenty years ago, I was flying uh, down to San Juan, Puerto Rico on half the plane where Billy Graham team that was doing the first worldwide simulcast, and over a billion people heard the gospel. That was 20 years ago. And so, we know that, that, that in this discussion here, there are some people who say, that this has already all been fulfilled, that this distress that they're talking about has already been fulfilled, that this has already happened. It's called the preterist view. And they said when the the temple was destroyed in AD 70, this prophecy was fulfilled. I don't believe that. I think there's a future piece that we're going to see now. And the good news is if you're sharing your faith and if you get hauled in and someone's challenging you for your faith, don't sweat it. The Holy Spirit is going to help you speak. And I think that's a great encouragement for those of us who want to share our faith even today, but we're a little nervous about sharing our faith. And what if I don't have all the answers? What if I get stuck and I can't really answer their questions? It's all right. You see, I believe today that more than ever the gospel changes lives when your life comes across somebody else's life and they see your changed life. All the argumentation in the world doesn't usually save someone. It's not helping, it might give them an intellectual, like, hmm, I gotta figure that out. It's being salt and light right where you're at. It's when you go to a restaurant and you're gonna eat your meal and many of you pray before you eat. It's taking a moment and asking your waitress, hey, I'm gonna be praying for my meal. Is there anything that I could pray for you about today? Now, when you do that, watch their jaw drop and then pray for them. And if you do that, would you promise me to leave them a really good tip? Because it's really lame. I'm going to pray for you and then you stiff them. That is not good. That is not good. So we see that, that there is distress and we will be hauled in for account. Then in verses 12 through 13, we'll see divided families and death. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father to his child. Children will rise against parents. And verse 13, will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We'll come back to that point right now. This idea of people being kicked out of families for their faith. When we were young, uh, I was a young youth pastor in Huntington Beach. We had a kid named Kevin who came to live with us. And he got kicked out of his house once he, he was 17, because he trusted, put his faith in Christ. And we called his parents and I said, are you sure you wanna do this? And we're gonna take him in, is that okay? I mean, it was an awkward thing, right? This kid was gonna be on the street. And he lived with us for about a year, graduated from high school. To this dad, day, I don't think he's ever been reconnected with his, his family. But that wasn't the first. I did a wedding of a young lady who was Japanese, and her parents were Buddhist, and they disowned her. And we've heard of those families who use this phrase, you are dead to me because of their faith. And so we shouldn't be surprised. John 16 says, in this world, you're going to have troubles. Write that one down, John 16, John 15, 18 said, they hated him, they're going to hate you. But he says something interesting. He says... But the one who endures, verse 13, to the end will be saved. See, this is a great verse. I believe in what we call eternal security. And in fact, this tells me that if if I persevere to the end, that's evidence that I am a believer, that I am a Christian, that God is inside of me. By the way, I don't believe that perseverance itself saves you. It's evidence that you are saved. That's a big distinction there. Now, again, Matthew 10, he'd already warned them that this is your future. And so in the church age, during this time, all those things will happen, those four things. What will they be again? There will be um, disasters. There'll be distress. There'll be division and ultimately divided families and even death. Snapshot number three. Let's jump ahead to verses 14 to 23. Now, I think scene three is now after the church has been raptured and taken. So the church age comes, and if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the church goes up, all right? So let's review that again. Just like I talked about the millennium that comes after, there are three options. The option that I'm voting for and I think teaches in the text is that we go up before the seven years of the tribulation, all right? And I am praying like crazy that that is the right view. But if it's not the right view, I'm going to move quickly to the mid-trib position. And I'm praying to God <laughs> that at least we're not going through the second half of the tribulation because that's the really nasty stuff. And that's where this part is reflecting. There's gonna, when I talk about the abomination, desolation, that happens right at the midpoint of the tribulation. If that doesn't happen, doggone it, seriously? It's the post-trib position, and that means we're going through seven years of this stuff. And I'll think, Dr. Gundry from Westmont was right. I can't believe it. I can't believe that. By the way, one of the problems with the post-trib is you're going to go up just to come right back down again. Just think about that. That's a whole other story. But the bottom line is, by the way, if none of this makes sense, just talk to Pastor Scott. He'll sort it all out for you, all right? I'm just the guest speaker. You know, I'll be back in seven weeks. All right. The tribulation, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be and let those who are in Judea flee the mountains. I won't read the entire text, but all kinds of things happen. They're going to... If God hadn't shortened the days during that tribulation, the whole world would be decimated. And there's a lot of description. If you want to know what happens in the tribulation... There are a lot of chapters in Revelation from chapter 4 through 19 describes those awful days. Now, I believe that in this context, there are two fulfillments, a historical fulfillment that happened then and a future fulfillment, which we see, I believe, in the book of Revelation. Write these three verses down, Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.1. And this abomination of desolation that happens in the middle of the tribulation, I believe, could have had a historical film film way back in 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian king, comes in with 250,000 men and desecrates the temple. Now, what do Jews not think you should be eating? What kind of food that I like with breakfast? Pork, bacon. And so they sacrificed pigs on the altar. They splattered pig broth everywhere. They set up an aisle for Zeus and they banned temple sacrifices, and they established the worship of Zeus. That was not a good day if you were a Jew. And then many years later, in A.D. 40, just 10 years after this prediction by Jesus, Caligula does the same thing and tries to put an a, a idol up to his own worship. He was a Roman emperor at the time. And then ultimately in A.D. 70, the whole thing gets taken down. But I believe that there's a future fulfillment. And that future fulfillment is what's going to happen during the seven years of tribulation, which I've already um, kind of given you. By the way, if you want the pros and cons of pre trib, mid trib, post trib, I got all that stuff. We just don't have time to talk about it today. In fact, there's a guy, if you're really serious and really want to listen to sermons, John MacArthur did six sermons. Over seven hours of teaching on just Mark 13. That was part of my 18 hours this week, listening to those. It was just, uh, he's forgotten more about, you know, Mark 13 than I've ever learned. Scene number four, the second coming, verses 24 to 31. So where are we? I believe the second coming comes after the tribulation. Jesus comes down to meet his church. Now remember, if you're pre trib, you're already up, you're you're already gone. So who's going to be in this? Well, we see that before that happens, there's some nasty stuff that's going to happen at the end of tribulation. Sun will be darkened, stars will be falling from the heavens. I'm telling you, it's the biggest light show in all of eternity is going to happen. And he, he says in here that in verse 28 learn the lesson of the fig tree that when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And this is a problem because people for years interpreted, oh, does that mean when he's talking to disciples that that generation won't pass away before all this comes? In fact, if you read Thessalonians, you kind of get the idea they think that Jesus is coming pretty quickly. I don't think that means that at all. What it means is, the people who see these signs happening in their world around them, it's that generation that won't pass before He comes back. That's why people got all excited in 1948, because what nation was recognized for the first time in almost 2,000 years? Israel became a nation in 1948, and if you read, read this book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, he made kind of a bold prediction that, you know, generations, 40 years, that we have till 1988, till Christ returns. Now, the problem is that we've been listening to people about that, and we'll talk about that in a moment, about do we know when Christ is going to come back? No, we don't. We'll see that in just a moment. So I believe this generation means the group that's seeing all this stuff, the sun being darkened, the stars falling from the heaven and when the, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So who is he gathering up? All the Christians who have been raptured, either pre-trib, mid-trib, or perish of thought, post-trib. Uh, then we've got people who become Christ followers during the seven years of, tri- of the tribulation. And so they, and then people who have died um, and, and gone to be with the Lord, they'll be coming with him. So it's a huge, big party called the second coming, the blessed hope. Everybody is a part of this party if they know Christ. Scene five. Now, when is that happening? I believe this is the takeaway for today's message. Look at verses 22 to 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I say to you all, stay awake." The whole intent of this passage is not to figure out when Christ is coming back. It's not to chronolo- chrono- the chronology of all the, all the horrible things that are going to happen, not only now but in the future. But I have two takeaways for us today. Number one, you've got to be ready. No one knows when Christ will return. And he uses that analogy of a business owner, like you've got to take care of stuff, the boss is coming back soon. You know, so many people have tried to predict this. Uh, Clement uh, of Alexandria tried, said Christ was coming back in 1890. Joseph Smith of Mormon fame predicted 1832 and then quickly moved to 1890. Ellen G. White, Seventh-day Adventist movement in 1856 said he was coming back. Jehovah's Witnesses in 1914, 18, 1925, 41, 75, and most recently, 1990 said He's coming back. By the way, every's bat an O for whatever. We're O for 300 in predicting when Christ is coming back, right? And the problem is our preoccupation shouldn't be about when, it should be over the what and the why. When, I don't know. I don't know who the Antichrist is. I don't know who the Antichrist's mother-in-law is. But I do know this, I know the what. I know that Jesus is coming back someday. And I know the why. Because he loves you and has a plan for you. And that plan of redemption's been unfolding for 2,000 years. You see, we celebrate the birth of Christ and that's the beginning of this plan of great redemption. Actually, quite frankly, we can go back to Genesis and we see this panoramic view that God's been relentless about chasing after you because He loves you and He died for you. And ultimately, you have a choice to make today. But you've got to be ready because no one knows when He'll come back. And you say, wait, wait, how can Jesus, if He's God, not know when He's coming back? Well, Think about that in verse 32. Again, he's talking about, to the disciples at that point, he's come down from heaven in humankind, and he gave up his independent use of his divine attributes while he was on earth. He he checked his omniscience at the door. He left it in trust with God the Father. And so at that time, even he doesn't know. Now, of course, he does know today. He's back in heaven with his glorified body, with God sitting at the right hand. So he does know. But that's why some people get a little tripped up with that. Our second takeaway today is be awake. Don't be lulled into complacency. We have work to do. Don't be depressed about where the world is headed. You see, ultimately, we see that the world wants peace, right? But ultimately, friends, it's not till the Prince of Peace does his work in our hearts that true peace will ever happen in this world. We don't get peace by treaties and negotiations and political strategies. Peace ultimately starts when we recognize our need for a savior, the Christ child. And ultimately, we, we can do all the interpretive maneuvering we want. I believe this is accurate. But the details of all of this are almost inconsequential on one hand if I miss Jesus. So those of you who, who really love this study of eschatology, this has been a nice little lesson. For others of you today, you're going like, man, that was like, whoa, I don't get this. Truth be known? Most of us don't. But here's what I do know Jesus changed me. He reached out and grabbed me when I was six years old. And that began a journey, a great story of redemption that is repeated. Hundreds, thousands, and millions of times across this this world of people where Jesus came in and intersected their life. That's the good news. And we've got to get busy about kingdom work. Kingdom work. G.K. Chesterton, kind of talking about all of this, said it this way. He says, it's only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head, and not unnaturally, his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens." See Jesus is coming back. And when it's all said and done, if I have the kingdom priorities of life, even though I am so excited that in two hours I am flying down the five freeway legally, Lord willing, to go see a grandson, but I'll tell you the better news is not that he was born last night, but that he was born 2,000 years ago. Not that he'll give joy to my daughter and son-in-law. That's not the big news. The exciting news will be there's going to be a day, Lord willing, when little Rhett is going to pray with his mommy and his daddy. And he's going to say, Jesus, I love you. And when Rhett sees Jesus as his Redeemer, as His Savior, as the King of kings and Lord of the Lord. That's the big news. That's the gospel. That's grace. That's mercy. That's the redemption that in this day and age when there's so much pessimism about wars and distress and disasters and earthquakes and famines and persecution, it's all worth it, isn't it? When Jesus makes a difference in your life. Amen. Soon and very soon he'll he'll be coming back. And the great question today is are you ready for that? And if you're not, I want to give you a chance to experience that life-changing message of the gospel. And if you'd pray along silently with me as I pray, we want to give you an invitation to respond to his great redemptive invitation. Heavenly Father, I know that I need you. I know that the world isn't getting better, and apart from all the promises, I know that ultimately there won't be peace until you make peace in our hearts. And so, Lord, I know that I need you, that I'm a sinner, that I'm far from you, and that I take the fact that you died on the cross, paid for the penalty of my sin, And then, Lord, you offer that free gift of eternal life if we trust in you, in Jesus Christ, alone for our salvation. And so we believe that, Lord. We accept that truth, and we want to begin that journey of new life in Christ. If you just prayed that prayer along with me right now, you're a part of God's family if it's the first time you've ever done that, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Come and tell me. I prayed that today, Pastor John. Tell Pastor Scott. But if I haven't missed my mark today, a lot of you have made that decision. But I know for others of you, you know Jesus, but you're reminded today that maybe your priorities have just not really been where they should. I don't want to manipulate you or prod you or guilt trip you. But the message of Mark 13 is there's a blessed hope. And we got to get busy for the kingdom, not in a legalistic kind of way, but in a joyful way that says, hey, I want to make a difference for Jesus. And maybe for some of you, you're saying, I need to get back on track. I get all kinds of things caught in the way of doing life and I want to make him a priority in my life again. Be about his work. And if that's you today, would you just look up at me long enough for me to see your eyes? You don't have to come forward or sign anything. Okay, 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 okay. Wait till I see you. Okay. Anybody else? Wait till I see you. Okay, okay. Okay young and old, all across this audience. Anybody else? Lord, I resonate with that myself. I can get so focused on the here and now that I forget the bigger picture, the panorama of redemption that stretches from creation all the way to your return. And so Lord, we wanna serve you. We wanna get busy for the kingdom. We wanna be awake. Don't let us be deceived. We want to keep on moving forward with you as you lead us, as you guide us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.